Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hi, everybody. It is Monday, June the 13th, 2022. A couple of weeks ago, I did an interesting show with Sasha Eisenberg. Um, he has a new book out, uh, The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. What struck me, this is not an area that I'm particularly familiar with, but what struck me about his book and his narrative was how Americans' opinion of same-sex marriage and indeed the whole uh, gay rights, gay culture issue has become so mainstream, astonishing over the last 10 or 15 years. And we're continuing our theme of a history of gay America uh, in our conversation today with another best-selling book, Secret City, the, Histon, the Hidden History of Gay Washington by James Kerchick. Jamie is joining me from um, Union Square in San Francisco, uh, appropriately clandestine uh, venue in, in, in our city. Jamie, welcome. Thank you for having me. So this history of Washington, D.C., secret history, is it a, a hidden history, a hidden political history of gay Washington or a, hist a hidden sexual history? Or is the, are the sex and the politics so entangled that they're hard to separate? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. <clears throat> and the reason I wrote this book is because Washington is a city of secrets and secrets are a form of power in Washington. And that's particularly been the case uh, since World War II, when the United States became a global superpower and started constructing uh, a national security bureaucracy for the management of confidential information and for secrets. And the security clearance all of a sudden became a very important status symbol in Washington. And it's also around this same period that homosexuality goes from being just a, a sin or a medical condition in the general understanding of things into becoming a national security threat. Uh, because the fear is that homosexuals will be more prone to blackmail, that they're basically inherently treasonous because they will go to any length to keep their very shameful secret a secret. Uh, and homosexuality becomes the worst possible secret and that made it, I think, a very interesting um, uh, sort of uh, tool or, or way, means of understanding Washington was to examine it through the history of the most powerful, dangerous secret that existed there. You begin the book with a quote by Balzac, one of my favorite writers. Um, mm. uh, there are two histories, official history, lying, and then secret history, where you find the real causes of events. Actually, the thing that I put up on screen isn't the, the full quote. Uh, your quote is, there are two histories, the official lying history, which is taught in schools, history and usum delphini, and the secret history in which the real causes of events are set forth, a shameful history. What strikes me about your use of Balzac is, of course, Balzac is the great historian of 19th century France, and particularly of Paris. There's a huge difference between Paris and Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is such a, a mundane place, <laughs> lacking much culture or indeed any history. Um, 
do you think that that has created more of a hidden history in a city like DC, which has no facade, no exterior, everything is interior? That's an interesting point. Well, I say in the book that Washington has simultaneously been the gayest and the most anti-gay city in America. Uh, and it was the gayest city um, because for a very long time, uh, the skills that are, that are required to have a successful career in Washington were the sorts of skills that a closeted gay person, and really a closeted gay man, if we're going to be specific, um, was almost sort of preternaturally equipped um, to, to hold. Um, if you think about skills like discretion, uh, the ability to keep secrets, to show one form of yourself to the world while maintaining another one secretly, right? Uh, to be able to work very long hours at the drop of a hat to answer the phone, that 2 a.m. phone call from your, from your boss. These were the sorts of skills that, um, you know, gay men of a certain generation in the mid 20th century uh, were uniquely positioned to, to hold. And so you saw a lot of gay people coming to Washington, also just for the general purposes um, of why gay people move to cities uh, in, in general. I mean, San Francisco, obviously, being one of them, New York, fleeing small town life. And so Washington really attracts a lot of gay people. But at the same time, um, again, being a city that thrives on hypocrisy, it's probably the most anti-gay city because you cannot be openly gay. Um, there's no sector really where that is appropriate, certainly not in politics, not journalism, not the military, not lobbying, not any of these power centers. So it's unlike New York or San Francisco, where there are, you know, large open gay communities quite early on, uh, and they're welcomed in, you know, gay people are welcomed in certain businesses or trades in those, in those cities. In Washington, uh, they weren't welcome in the political world. And so it creates this, um, this real dichotomy uh, for from the 1940s that I start writing about until the until the turn of the century. Yeah, your, yeah. your book is a history, a very clear history. You begin with FDR, you go through Truman and, and Eisenhower up to, to, to more contemporary presidents. I wonder if there's another, you call it a dichotomy, a hypocrisy, this distinction between truth and appearance, which is, of course, um, what you write about in the book, in, in D.C. itself. America, of course, is founded as a, um, an, an anti-colonial experiment, as the first state opposed to global power and all the rest of it. And, of course, for one reason or another, by FDR, America had emerged as a global power. It's always been very uncomfortable, very awkward, and generally, I think, rather bad at being a world power. Um, Washington, D.C. is the most unimperial of cities. So do you think that compounded the hypocrisy, the fact that Washington, D.C. is clearly so uncapital-like uh, in, 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 a, in a country which was uncomfortable and awkward and unfamiliar with ruling the world? It's all about power, isn't it, Jay? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we see a lot, a real fear in the early years of the Cold War um, about this new role that America was undertaking, a lot of uncertainty in being really the most powerful country in the world at that point after the destruction of World War II. The United States is really left alone, of course, standing across the world from the Soviet Union and entering into this Cold War era. Um, 
and seeing that the United States, things aren't going so well in those early years of the Cold War. You look at the, the victory, the, the loss of China, as they said, um, the subsuming of Eastern Europe into the Soviet sphere, sphere. And this is what gives Joe McCarthy rise, right? Is that he can point to all these failures overseas. And he has a very simple sounding answer to this question of why it is America is losing and the free world seems to be losing. And it's that there's a communist conspiracy in the State Department and in the Truman administration. And we've all read about that and we know about that, the Red Scare. But less well known was the whole gay component to this, this real anti-gay panic uh, called the Lavender Scare, where these two fears were intertwined. The fear of communism was intertwined with this fear of homosexuality. Uh, and this fear that, you know, a FET cookie pushing uh, men in the State Department who were not only politically unorthodox, they were sexually unorthodox. Um, and it's heightened in 1951 when uh, there are two British diplomats who flee. They've been more posted at the British Embassy in Washington. They flee to the Soviet Union, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean. Uh, Guy Burgess is flamboyantly gay, and this becomes known to the FBI. It starts getting leaked into the press. And this sort of solidifies in the minds of the red and the lavender hunters this notion of a homintern, which is which is a sort of play on words of the common turn, the communist international. All of a sudden, there's this homosexual international, uh, and this fear that homosexuals, you know, they're not visible from the outside. You can't tell one; they can disguise themselves, and they are um, dispersed all over the world, and they're not loyal to the countries. Uh, uh, to which they nominally serve, they're actually loyal to this international fraternity, this secret fraternity of other men. Uh, and so this this kind of Cold War anxieties having to do with the role of the United States in the world and um, and having a lot to do with power, they absolutely influenced um, this this domestic lavender scare at, at home. Are, are you saying, Jamie, then, that America's discomfort with its own role, this self-evident hypocrisy of a of, a, of an anti-colonial company a country suddenly be I, that was a freudian slip calling it a company uh, an anti-colonial country becoming the colonial center of the world that that somehow drove paranoia hysteria both against communism and homosexuality it might have played a role it's actually not something i've i've thought about um I think one of the major determining factors actually was the uh, was the gradual and then all and then very sudden realization that there are actually a lot more gay people than than we had initially assumed. Uh, and World War II played a huge role in this uh, because you have for the first time this massive mobilization of people from all over the country. They're going off to fight. Um, lots of people from rural places. They're they're meeting um, Americans from all different parts and different walks of life. And for gay Americans, this is a very important moment in sort of developing a group consciousness. Um, and there are just multiple, multiple stories, anecdotal stories, oral histories that have been taken of, of gay people, you know, really realizing for the first time that they were not alone, that this was not just some weird sickness that they had, but there were lots of other people like them. And they developed this understanding in World War II when, you know, men obviously going off to serve uh, overseas and fighting, and then a lot of women in the, in the Women's Army Corps. Um, and then just a couple of years after World War II, in 1948, in the span of one month, we have the Kinsey Report is published. 
Uh, this is a major report that finds something around 10% of adult males are homosexual. Um, and then within weeks of that, there are two novels published, one by Gore, a young, very young man named Gore Vidal called The City and the Pillar. And this is the first uh, novel in American literature, mainstream novel, to deal with the subject of homosexuality in a, in a sympathetic way. And then right after that, Truman Capote, uh, another young uh, gay writer, he publishes a novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, which also deals with, with gay themes. And so there's this sort of explosion, really, in understanding of homosexuality and a realization that it's a lot more prevalent than anyone really had believed. And this, when you combine that with the communist fears, and communists are similar to homosexuals in that you can't tell them from the outside, they can disguise themselves as well. Right. Um, it's, the, it's these two kinds of phenomena, this growing awareness of homosexuality and this fear of communism. Um, and they, and then it's, and it's, you know, America's becoming a very conformist society, as we know, right throughout the Eisenhower men, year. Men in, men in, what is it? Men in the gray the organization, suit. The organization man, the man, yeah, the organization man, the man in the gray flannel suit. And, I, and I'm sure they can be, and they will be deconstructed in a, in a, in a sexual way as some sort of yeah. repression. What about the politics, Jamie? Because America, uh, D.C. is supposed to be a political place. Um, you're presenting homosexuality, at least at the beginning of the narrative, as a, if not a form of re rebellion, certainly a, one of nonconformity. You're conservative. Many prominent gay Americans, you, uh, Andrew Sullivan, many others are actually quite conservative. In the beginning, in the 1940s, when your your narrative began, were, were gay men, by definition, going to be progressives? Were they going to challenge convention? Or did it manifest itself? In, and I know you have an interesting narrative on J. Edgar Hoover of it sort of compounding their own reactionary identities and ideologies. It's a good question. Um, well, the first real sustained gay rights organization in the United States was founded in Los Angeles, the Mattachine Society. And it was founded by a member of the Communist Party, a man named Harry Hay. Um, but within just a few, and he had been involved in the Henry Wallace campaign, uh, which was a third party campaign in 1948 that was supported by the Communist Party. Um, but then actually just after a couple of years of its founding, Hay was expelled by other members within the organization because uh, there was obviously a lot of pressure you know, anti-communist um, hysteria, but they also didn't want, they weren't communists. They were more liberal or, I mean, they were small D Democrats. And so they expelled Hay. And, you know, if you think about it, being a gay man, uh, more so than a woman, but being a gay man in America in the 1950s, it's really like being a communist, sorry, it's really like, it's really like being a dissident in a communist society in the yeah. society on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I mean, you're being surveilled, you're being arrested. Your gathering places are being broken up. Your organization you're being watched. Like you, you're in you're in Mar uh, Union Square, uh, Jamie, Precisely. where the conversation was filmed. Where right, you're being watched. You're being surveilled. Your mail is being read. You're being institutionalized. Right, maybe lobotomized and put under a kind of medical torture, just like the Soviet Union did to its dissidents. And so you see a lot of, or, or I would say, a fair number of of prominent gay men are actually quite libertarian in their politics. So they were. They didn't all turn out like Guy Burgess, fellow. No, not at all. Not fellow at all. Travelers. Not at all. And that was a complete and utter. Um, I mean, there are actually some very right wing gays. You could even say almost, you know, fascist ones. But the point I'm trying to make is that 
gay people, like straight people, they are just as diverse and they fall everywhere on the political spectrum, um, just as straight people can fall everywhere on the political spectrum. Homosexuality really doesn't become a partisan issue in the American sense, really until the late 70s or even the 1980s. Um, up till that point, I mean, I can't stress it enough, you know, people on the left would use homophobia and, and allegations of homosexuality as a weapon, just as much as people on the Are right. Are you nostalgic for that period where homosexuality wasn't as aggressively or crudely politicized? I think we're actually moving back to that to be on, and that might seem strange. I think today the issue of transgenderism, I think, has become very politicized. Um, but actually, if you look at, but I, I, I think gay rights and homosexuality itself as an issue is largely settled in the United States. And I think you're going to see going forward, um, gay people are, you know, obviously they've, they tend to vote more left wing and they have for several decades now. But those numbers I would expect to actually go back towards some more kind of e equilibrium, if not 50-50. Um, but I do think as, you know, younger generations of people growing up, gay people, gay men and women growing up are not going to uh, vote necessarily um, in larger numbers for the left as they have for the past, say, 40 years. Jamie, we're all proud of our cities for their historical significance. I actually live in San Francisco, just above the Castro. So I like to think of San Francisco as the place where the uh, the gay revolution was born and realized. Mm -hmm. People from um, New York, a lot, of course, like to think of it as coming from the Stonewall riots. But I know in your book, you suggest actually, and perhaps it's no coincidence, you're from D.C., that it all began in D.C., that D.C. is the, the we can trace the origins of mm -hmm. the success of the gay rights movement to Washington, D.C. What happened? What was the year and who were the people involved? Well, I think the founding of the Washington Mattachine Society in 1961 is really decisive. Uh, and it's founded by a man named Frank Kameny, who was a Harvard-trained astronomer. And in 1957, right at the height of the space race, right after Sputnik is launched, he's working for the Army Map Service, which is the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And he's stationed, you know, off in Hawaii, on, on the big island of Hawaii, um, in one of their... Um, you know, what, what, what do they call those? The space, um, where, where, uh, where you look at, where you look at the sky from, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I giant telescopes he's, he's, he's working yeah. on and he's fired. I mean, he's summoned back to Washington by the civil service commission because they've come across evidence that he is gay and they fire him on the spot and he becomes the first person, um, out of, you have to, this is, you know, years into the lavender scare, year, you know, thousands of people have been fired from their jobs. He becomes the first to decide, you know what, I'm actually going to fight this. And that requires coming out. That requires, you know, making a legal case. He can't do this anonymously. And not even the ACLU will take his case because they, um, at, at this again, just to stress that this, this is how lonely the homosexual was in the 1950s. Not even the ACLU would take an anti-gay discrimination case. And he tries to take his case all the way to the Supreme Court, but it's it's rejected. And he starts this organization and it and it, it becomes the first gay, the first real sustained um, gay civil rights organization. And they organize pickets outside federal agencies. They're writing letters to government leaders. Um, they become real. 
the real kind of public face of a homosexual civil rights movement. It's called the homophile movement at that time. And they're small in numbers. They're, they're, they're few in numbers. Um, but they, they're, they're very important and they're written about in the newspapers. And you can imagine someone in a small town somewhere in the middle of America reading about a group of homosexuals protesting in a very civil, respectful way uh, outside the White House, demanding, demanding their civil rights. And so that, that, that when I say that the movement really started in Washington, that's what I'm referring to. This is long before Stonewalls, before Harvey Milk um, in San yeah. Francisco. And, and in a funny way, I think perhaps why that resonated in small town America is because, and I, I couldn't quite put it into words earlier, Washington, D.C. is a small town in every yes. sense, in both the best and the worst context. It's not yes. a capital city, really. Yeah. Yes, it is a small town. And also keep in mind, Washington is the city where everyone in America comes together because this is this is our national capital. And so everyone is there together. You will meet a greater diversity of people politically. And this is very important. You will meet a, uh, the real cross section of the American ideological spectrum in Washington in a way that you never will in San Francisco or New York. Those cities are very, very left. For sure. Certainly not in where I live in San Francisco. So or those cities. So I'm not I, I, right. So I'm not trying to disparage the activism that went on in San Francisco and New York City. But that's not what was really convincing the part of America that needed to be convinced. Right. About about gay equality. That's happening in Washington, D.C. That's happening in the nation's capital city, which also, you know, in 1975, because the Civil Service Commission, that's the year that the Civil Service Commission lifts the ban on gay people working in the federal civil service, which actually makes Washington, D.C. one of the earliest cities to have an anti-discrimination, effectively have an anti-discrimination law, um, that the city's largest employer at that point be, uh, is, is welcome to, to gay people. Um, so you have a lot of gay people moving to Washington and Washington actually develops its own, you know, very vibrant gay community it might not be as as wild as as that found in San Francisco at the time or or in New York. But it's a it's a very active one. Uh, we're on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. We've done some shows already about it. I did one with Jefferson Morley last week, who has a new book out called Scorpions dance, which suggests that there was some sort of secret deal between Nixon and the head of the CIA to explain away both the CIA's involvement in the assassination of JFK and then um, uh, Nixon's involvement in, in, the, in the Watergate burglary. I know you have an interesting read both on JFK and Watergate in the context of Secret City, mm. two of the, the key events of the last 70 years in American political history, and particularly in D.C. How might an interpretation of Secret City or your, your narrative, how, would, how might that shed some light, much needed light on both the JFK assassination and on Watergate. Well, the JFK assassination, um, people don't always remember this, but a couple of years after, well, the only man who was prosecuted for assassinating JFK was a man named Clay Shaw, who was a businessman in New Orleans. And in 1967, he becomes the target of a prosecution by the district attorney, a man named Jim Garrison, who alleges that he is at the center of a right-wing plot involving the CIA and the FBI and all sorts of other various forces uh, to assassinate Kennedy. Now, he doesn't say it publicly, 
But privately, he's telling a lot of journalists that he thinks it was really a, a right-wing gay cabal that was responsible for killing Kennedy, that it was a, quote, homosexual thrill killing, and that not only Shaw was gay, but another, but that Oswald was gay, that Jack Ruby was gay, the man who assassinated Oswald. It's a harebrained, uh, crazy conspiracy theory, but it actually becomes the basis of what would be the only prosecution of anyone for the Kennedy assassination. The jury ended up ended up um, throwing out the case in less than an hour. It took them less than an hour to deliberate and to declare Clay Shaw an innocent man, but his life was basically ruined by Jim Garrison. And the shame and the dishonor of this would only be compounded by the fact that Oliver Stone, many years later, would make the Garrison prosecution the basis of his multiple Academy Award-nominated film, JFK. And he actually just made a documentary a couple months ago um, JFK revisited, in which he's reiterating the charges against Shaw. Um, and so, yes, homophobia plays a very important role. It's interesting that, uh, and I don't want to drag um, uh, uh, more uh, uh, Jefferson Morley into there, but he he loves that movie. What about... Um... Great, I'll say it's actually, it's a great film in terms of filmmaking, in the same way that Lenny Reifenstahl's films are very uh, brilliantly made Films, I would say it's kind of it's in the service of an evil cause, JFK, um, you know, slandering this innocent man as, as part of a, a, a part of a gay cabal. But it's in filmmaking terms. Yes, it's a it's it's a it's very fun to watch. What about Watergate? All the all the president's men. Maybe that's a yeah. headline that has some double entendre. But um, <laughs> Nixon well, yeah. was notoriously anti-gay. He, yes. you, you say in the book that he was the one president who who really did think that gays were somehow in the service of the devil. Was there anything, anything gay about Watergate? Any, any new take you have on it that might shed some light on what happened? Well, yes, actually. And I think it goes back to uh, Nixon's involvement in the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case, uh, which was the great, the great real first spy drama of, of, of the right. And by the way, we had um, Tony Hiss on the show recently. Oh. Uh, Algus Sun, who's a very distinguished uh, environmental yeah. writer, so it's kind of interesting. So Whitaker Chambers, the man who accused Alger Hiss of being a communist spy, did have a gay past. Uh, he, by the time he made the allegations, he was married with children. But he has he, a very he, gay photo on Wikipedia. <laughs> he confessed this to the FBI secretly um, because he knew that the Hiss forces would potentially try to use this against him. Uh, and there's two chapters in the book that really get into the kind of homoerotic subtext of the whole Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case. But Richard Nixon was convinced that not only Chambers, but that Hiss was gay as well, and that the two of them had an affair. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. But Nixon, at least according to what he says on the tapes to his advisors decades later, believed this. And so he really believed that, you know, there was this, the, 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 the Hiss Chambers case was very enigmatic. You know, many people couldn't understand what was really going on between these two men. And for some, the question of homosexuality provided an answer. Uh, and Nixon was one of them. And we, and he, you can connect this to Watergate because when Daniel Ellsberg, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers, when he, um, when the Nixon White House wanted to smear him or slander him, uh, and this was the first use of the plumbers, the plumbers unit, um, they want to find damaging information on uh, Ellsberg. And 
the uh, leaders, the ringleaders of this, um, Hugh, uh, uh, G. Gordon Liddy, and um, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, Howard. Hunt or uh, Haldeman? You no, know, Hunt, Howard Hunt, um, the former CIA guy. They basically tell their plumbers, these Cubans, that you know, we need to find dirt on Ellsberg, that he's gay. We need to find something in, you know, something in his past that would expose him as a homosexual. And that would discredit him in the eyes of the American public. And therefore these Pentagon papers, uh, it'll, 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 it'll go away. And so this is what leads them to go break into the, uh, Ellsberg psychiatrist's office in, in Beverly Hills is this hope, this mad hope that they'll find some evidence that Ellsberg is a, is a sexual deviant. Um, just as, you know, Nick, just as Nixon believed Chambers and Hiss were gay and that this was their deep, dark secret. And, and Nixon seemed to collapse being gay and being Jewish and being a communist, which is a not an unusual collapse, right? He, well, he hated all three groups, absolutely. Um, and I think his homophobia kind of gives us a window into his paranoia. Uh, we know he was a very paranoid president. He saw conspiracies everywhere, uh, enemies lurking in the shadows. Uh, and he had a, and he had a, he had a similarly paranoid view of homosexuality, associating it with the downfalls of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, he believed that the Soviets were encouraging it in the United States to bring down civilization. He saw homosexuality as basically a harbinger of societal collapse, which didn't really make him that unusual. I don't think. Right. It's interesting in the, in the context of your narrative, because Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon's politics aren't that different. But you suggest in the book that Reagan, and particularly his wife, Nancy Reagan, were much, to use a word carefully, much softer on homosexuality, much more uh, accepting, much more inclusive. So something had changed between Nixon and Reagan. Well, I think it's a different, it's a different temperament. And Ronald Reagan was just more at ease with himself, perhaps, and around other people. Uh, and he had gay friends. Which is, by the way, not to say that Nixon didn't have at least one gay acquaintance. I mean, there's one man I write about who I, he's, he's dead, so I don't really have any issues with this, but who I reveal as having been gay was, was Nixon's chief speechwriter, Ray Price. Yeah, you, um, uh, you out to quote unquote, you yeah. out him in your book. Yeah, and um, I think it's important that we know this only to the extent that it shows, and this is a recurring pattern in the book, that you can have these presidents, they can have very close advisors or friends whom they know to be gay, Yet they can have, you know, political, they can have publicly expressed views or policies that are very harmful to gay people. And that and that's a recurring theme. And that goes that starts with FDR. And we see it with Dwight Eisenhower, who one of his top aides is gay and he fires him immediately at the instigation of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, his best friend, Len Billings, is gay. He's great friends with Gore Vidal. There are other uh, JFK probably is the most relaxed, most comfortable around gay men. Well, he grew up, his, his best friend was gay. When his best friend, I just said, yeah, Lem, Lem, Lem Billings. But that doesn't, that doesn't have any effect whatsoever on the policies of the Kennedy administration, right? Um, and then with Nixon too, I mean, his, Ray Price, he knows Ray Price is gay. I have that on authority from several other Nixonians. Um, yet at the same time, he can say the most, you know, horrible, loathsome things about gay people um, in these taped conversations with with his aides. And so that's just an important, I think that's just an important thing to know about, about our, our presidents throughout history, that they could balance, that they could, they could be hypocrites, right? That's, that's just something you have to be in politics. Um, with Reagan. Jamie, and- uh, deconstruct for me the, 
there seems to be a, I use this word carefully, maybe a certain sort of bitterness within the gay community when it comes to politics. And your, your book's done very well. It's a bestseller. But there have been some very hostile reviews, one in particular in the Washington Post that accuse you of all sorts of things, including mangling um, language. Is there a particular political sensitivity to writing about these issues that bring out both the best and the worst in people in terms of your critics? I don't want to address any individual critic um, specifically. And I've been gratified by the response to the book. Um, I mean, really, you know, it's done very well, uh, both commercially and I think critically as well. I think what makes the book unique and perhaps um, problematic to use a word that academics like uh, is that most most people who write about gay issues um, don't really write about it from the position of people in power, right? So they write a lot about activists, they write a lot about marginalized individuals, and they see the gay, gay people as almost being inherently marginalized. Whereas the perspective that I'm trying to, to take is to say, look, there are actually all these gay people who were really powerful, and they were in positions of power, and they were close to power. And I'm interested in looking at that dynamic and that relationship, um, which is not to say that there aren't other valid ways of looking at gay people in history. This one that I've done hasn't been done before, and that's why I wanted to do it. You know, the world didn't need another book about um, ACT UP. There have been lots of books written about ACT UP. Do you think the way that academics these days seem to use word, the word problematic, you brought it up, and... In, in the context of certain conservatives is similar to the way in which mainstream society used the word problematic to describe gays once upon a time? Interesting. Um, yeah, the word problematic does seem, it seems to um, be applied to anything that doesn't really fit into a kind of narrow understanding of something, right? And that's what gay people were. Gay people didn't fit. Like America had a very um, conformist, very specific understanding of not only how, you know, a man was supposed to be married to a woman, period, but men had to behave in certain ways and dress certain ways. And women had to behave and dress in certain ways. And our expectations of men and women were they were very gendered. They were very strict. They were very conformist. And there was very little room for diversity within those understandings. A woman's job was to marry a man and have children and to, and to be a homemaker. Uh, and a man's job was to, you know, uh, was to feed a family for two. And that was it. Um, and gay people fit outside of natural gay people inherently uh, exist outside of those gendered expectations. And that's so why maybe we should, should we do away with the word, Jamie? Is it a useful problematic? Gay. Gay. Num, should we do away with it? Well, in the way you're presenting it, it seems kind of redundant these days. No, I mean, I think... I mean, obviously it defines what people do in their bedrooms, but apart from that, it's... Oh, I see what you mean. I've always believed that homosexuality is a sexual orientation. It's not a political one. Um, and, like I, and, I, and I hope we're getting back to that. I think there was a period when they were somewhat connected because gay people were being oppressed for who they were. Um, and you did have to, and being gay was sort of 
you you your life was politicized and that and that and that you were discriminated unavoidably whether you you wanted it or not, wanted it or not. I mean, in that sort of right orwellian I, way that yeah. nothing could be um that, that it was an affront to traditional liberalism in that everything was political or the sexual right. became political right and now i don't think homosexuality needs to be political there are people who would like to keep it political and they're on the they're on the queer left um but I don't. I think living in a liberal, tolerant society is that your existence does not have to be political. Uh, Do you think that um, if Pete Buttigieg becomes the next president, which in my view isn't entirely unlikely, I agree. Um, what will that mean for Washington D.C. when we have two first men in the White House? Well, I think it'll mean a lot more for just Washington D.C. I think it'll mean a lot for the country. I mean, to well, go leaving in... aside the country, you wrote yeah. secret history, the hidden history of gay Washington. Right. If if two men uh, occupy the the White House next time around, what would that mean to D.C.? Uh, it'll be probably decorated in a much more fashionable way than it has been in recent in recent years. Um, but no, but being more serious, I think it'll it'll. Uh, well, I don't think it'll make make a tremendous change because I think Washington has been, as I said, it's been a very gay city and it's been a very uh, gay friendly city, actually, for quite some time. I really think since the Obama years mm. um, that really I mean, there was a lot of fear in, in Washington uh, during the Bush years, the George W. Bush years, because he was pushing a federal marriage amendment to ban gay marriage. And you had outing was a huge phenomenon in those years. Right. Anyone, any gay person who worked in a Republican office was considered fair game for outing uh, during those years. And there was a real sense of sort of uh, re re uh, recrimination and um, uh, it, was, it was a real war uh, within the gay community between Republican gays and, and left-wing gays. Uh, and, and homosexuality was um, a real issue in politics. It's just not anymore. And it wasn't during the Trump years. You know, Donald Trump appointed the first openly gay cabinet official um, his director of national intelligence. Do you think we, we, we should give Trump a little bit more credit on that front? I think he neutralized the issue of homosexuality because he ran he was he, he ran um, uh, in favor of gay marriage. Um, I think also his own sexual life has sort of neutralized the issue of sex and politics to a large degree. The fact that you had Christian evangelicals supporting uh, thrice married, let's just say sexually unorthodox president as Donald Trump, right? I think it kind of made this issue of private sexual behavior or private life. It, it, it kind of neutralized it in, you in think a way. That the, the January 6th movement, though, the Proud Boys and so on, are they as open-minded and tolerant as Trump? Probably not. Um, but I... Um, but I, to be honest, I feel, I feel like gay issues is like least on my list of concerns when it comes to the proud boys. I'm more, uh, there, there, there are a lot of other problems that I have with them before I get to the, to the gay issue. Um, but again, I don't really see, um, I'm not really that worried about a regression on gay rights in this country. Um, I just don't. I don't see it. I don't. I don't see. I don't see homophobia being an animating. Right. An animating I mean, and, and that's what cause. we talked to Sasha Eisenberg about. And perhaps what to make sense of it, and from your book, from his book, begin to confront other issues that we can't seem to get beyond, like gun rights and abortion. Yeah. Um, finally, um, James, uh, Jamie, 
your book, uh, Secret History, The Hidden History of Gay Washington is, is just out. It's a bestseller. Congratulations. Your Thank first you. book was The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues and the Coming Dark Age, published three or four years ago in 2018. Are these books in any way connected? Um, only in the sense that I think they're both uh, showing the importance of preserving classical liberal values. That's what my first book was about and sort of about the about the decline of those values, the abandonment of those values in Europe. Uh, and I think Secret City is really a ringing endorsement of the liberal society, because it is only in the liberal society that gay people could go from being criminalized, medically pathologized and condemned by every sector of society to go from that lowly position that that gay people occupied in this country in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and to reach the point where you and I can now seriously discuss a gay man, an openly gay man becoming president of the United States. That is such a dramatic transformation. And it is possible, only possible, because we live in a society where we respect freedom of speech, where we respect individual rights, uh, we respect freedom of association. And above okay. all else, we protect the right for people to have a life outside politics, that not everything is politicized. Which yes. is why you're suggesting that perhaps the illiberal left is uh, the real inheritor of, of anti-gay um, sentiment. In anyway, it's an interesting conversation, uh, yeah. Jamie. Uh, again, congratulations, Secret History, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It's, uh, it's a bestseller, deservedly so, marvelous piece of work very readable, very erudite. What else should people be reading these days in addition to Secret City? Anything else that you're reading? Um, I just finished Gary Steingart's latest novel, Our Country. Oh, he's good. Yeah, he's been on the show before. Which I which I loved and deserves all the praise that it, that it gets. Um, and I'm trying to make my way through Luke Manan's uh, Free World, uh, which is, I'm, I'd say trying, only be, not because it's not a great book. It is. I'm I heard just, it's a bit of a, it's a bit, turgid i'm not saying that i'm only saying that i'm very busy on a book tour and so it's hard for me to do anything but you know dip in and out of it um but it's but it's an important book and um worth worth checking out